The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QWZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us so early this morning. Um, we are here to talk about CLL this morning. Hope is here. Um, we are going to talk about oncology nurse strategies for delivering effective, compassionate, and modern care to patients. Um, we have a little housekeeping to do. I am here with Kristen Badiato and uh, Christina Rossimano. So let's dive in. So where do we stand with CLL in 2022? There are about 20,000 cases uh, diagnosed. That's the estimate for this year about 4,400 deaths. So the median age of diagnosis, as those of you know who, who see these patients, this is an older population in general, about 70 years of age is the median age. And CLL and SLL, small lymphocytic lymphoma, are identical. CLL is classified as having greater than 5,000 clonal lymphocytes in the peripheral blood, whereas SLL uh, patients don't have that high lymphocyte count, but they have lymphadenopathy. But to our pathologists, those are identical under the microscope. And fortunately, because of many of the new therapies that we are going to discuss today, the five-year survival rate is, is 87% um, for CLL patients. So those of you who see CLL patients, you know we do a lot of active surveillance or observation, watch and wait, whatever you're calling it. Um, and to pay their criteria for initiating treatment. And this is based on the International Working Group for CLL criteria. So patients need to have cytopenias or bulky adenopathy. You can see the list of things here, disease-related symptoms, you know, a node sitting in a problematic spot, splenomegaly. So we're waiting for these um, triggers to initiate therapy. And it's really important that we all know this so that we can talk patients through that observation period, because that's not always the most comforting time for patients. So let's talk about new agents. So we've really come a long way in the last, you know, it's actually less than 10 years. We've now got a, a host of new classes of drugs. We've got our BTK inhibitors, abrutinib, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib, and pirtabrutinib. So acalabrutinib and um, abrutinib are FDA-approved. Xanabrutinib is in um, phase three, as is pirtabrutinib. So these are coming. Uh, xanabrutinib is approved for a mantle cell, so that is, had, does have an FDA approval. Venetoclax is our BCL2 inhibitor. And then <clears throat> we've got our PI3 kinase inhibitors, idelalisib and duvalisib. Um, and those are, have limited um, indications at this point because of toxicity. We're not going to spend much time at all talking about that class of drugs. So why are we here? Clearly, we're here to learn about CLL. But despite progress with uh, these targeted agents, um, CLL really is still a challenging disease. So chemoimmunotherapy, things like FCR, BR, these are not anywhere in the NCCN guidelines as category one preferred regimens. But in the CLL INFORM registry, which is sort of an observation a study looking at um, treatment patterns and practice patterns, still 40% of patients with poor risk CLL 
are getting chemoimmunotherapy, um, and they do not benefit from chemoimmunotherapy. So clearly there's a, an education gap somewhere. So um, CLL patients previously treated with both BTK and, anti, and um, BCL2 inhibitors so our best drugs um, really do have poor outcomes because our currently available options in that space are limited, and we'll talk a little bit about those. So our agenda today, we're going to do case-based um, lectures on treatment choices and talking about low-risk disease and high-risk disease. We're going to talk about uh, se sequential therapy, CAR-T, future combinations, and, you know, all the way along talking about safety and management um, of these therapies. The CLL Society, I just want to shout this out for those of you who have not gone to this website or uh, who do not direct patients there. There's a wealth of information for both us as healthcare providers and to our patients. There are support groups. They have... Um, um, co-pay assistance programs. There's lots of education for patients. There's um, really nice guidelines for COVID, you know, in our age of COVID. So uh, definitely worth looking and figuring out what you need and what your patients need. So we've got a couple videos embedded throughout this. And so our first patient is Jeff. I'm Jeff Grubbs, and I've been living with CLL for 13 years. I was diagnosed during a routine annual physical. I walked in feeling fit, happy, and no complaints at all, and I walked out with a high white blood cell numbers and a referral to a hematologist-oncologist, and I was diagnosed with CLL soon afterward. So I got pretty depressed. I was very angry, and a few months of therapy really helped, and I finally got adjusted to the watching and waiting. But treatment time arrived five years later. I was treated twice with high doses of a chemo called cytarabine that was infused into my spine. I was also treated with high doses of a BTK inhibitor, ibrutinib, which is taken as a pill. And that got me back into remission again. Those awful seizures stopped and most of my eyesight has returned. So I go to show that this disease is super different in different people and requires a lot of managing sometimes. And I've never thought that CLL is gonna kill me and I still don't believe it will. I've had so many great memories of the fabulous nurses I've met along the way, way too many to go through, but one of my favorites was Emma, uh, who helped me with the intrathecal infusion of chemo. I was scared, having seizures, I couldn't really see, and then there were lots of delays. And Emma was with me step for step, and she was just a great advocate. And every nurse I've met along my way has just been so supportive and helpful and I'm incredibly grateful for every single one. I hope that you urge newly diagnosed patients to use reliable sources of information and not general internet searches. The CLL Society is an excellent source of information about this disease, and the address should be up on the screen. CLL is a lifelong and sometimes very scary process, and it's super helpful for patients to be in touch with other CLL patients. The CLL Society sponsors patients and caregiver, caregiver support groups around the United States and Canada. 
And patients just need to know and understand that there is lots of hope for CLL. The science is moving fast and it's constantly producing really effective new treatments. This is a place to really learn about them. To wrap things up, I want to talk directly to all the nurses in the audience. Nurses are who we patients see the most, and that's where our relationships usually are. I've had times that I've trusted the nurse much more than I trusted the doctor. Nurses are just the most important part of our care team, and I especially appreciate when nurses stick up for me when things are not going to plan. Infusions, complications, severe side effects, they're just the toughest part of treatment, and doctors don't often see them. We turn to nurses for help. CLL, it just isn't one size fits all. We can be extremely different and being sensitive to us as individuals with all of our differences is just so crucial to gaining trust and nurses are just really good at this. And most importantly, from my heart, you know, thank you so much for you and your colleagues for just your amazing work. You've made a big difference to me and I will be grateful forever. Um, and now I'm going to turn over to Christina. Thank you, Amy. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Christina, and I hope everyone is adequately caffeinated. We are going to start now delivering effective care now in CLL, Nurse Principles for Managing Treatment Naive Disease. Upfront choices, continuous versus time-limited therapy. So first, we're going to start assessing next steps for a patient with high-risk symptomatic CLL. So meet Michael. He was 72 years old when he was diagnosed with asymptomatic CLL. He was monitored for two years. He's now 74, and he returns to clinic with symptomatic disease, including your classic B symptoms, fevers, night sweats, unintentional weight loss, anemia, so a hemoglobin less than 10, and abdominal adenopathy on imaging. He has comorbid hypertension and a creatinine clearance greater than 60. Testing shows unmutated IGHV and TP53 mutation. So these are poor prognostic factors in CLL. So what are the next steps? How should Michael be counseled on his disease and on his prognosis? And should we pursue continuous or fixed duration therapy? So we have to start by explaining modern goals of therapy to patients with CLL. Um, it's very effective, but it has different goals. And it's important to actually empower patients and have them as, to be part of the decision making. So there are two avenues in front of us. We have continuous therapy, so this is BTK inhibitors, currently a brutinib and a calibrutinib. These are medications you take every day or twice a day, like your blood pressure medications or your thyroid medication. Goals of therapy here are disease control, prolonged PFS, and independent from response, minimal residual disease. Second avenue, though, is fixed duration therapy, so time-limited. An option here is venetoclax, your BCL2 inhibitor, plus obinutuzumab, a monoclonal antibody. Goals of therapy are different. Disease eradication, prolonged progression-free survival, and undetectable minimal residual disease. So these are the NCCN guidelines. Uh, BTK and BCL2 inhibitors are the preferred upfront treatment options in treatment-naive CLL. So for patients age greater than or equal to 65, or patients aged less than 65 with significant comorbidities, the preferred regimens are here in this gray arrow. You have a calibrutinib, your BTKI, plus or minus obinutuzumab, your monoclonal antibody, a brutinib monotherapy, venetoclex, your BCL2 inhibitor, plus obinutuzumab, and those are your category ones, and also mentioned here is xanabrutinib, which is not yet approved in CLL. 
Again, coming down to patients aged less than 65 without significant comorbidities, the preferred regimens are actually identical. So what about high-risk settings? What about patients who have deletion 17P or TP53 mutations? Oddly enough, and this is not a trick, the preferred regimens are, again, identical. Uh, There are also some other recommended regimens, but the preferred regimens stay the same. The one thing that we can look from, we learned from the past two slides is actually chemoimmunotherapy is not recommended any longer, right? So the novel agents are recommended, but chemoimmunotherapy is not. So here we just have some randomized studies that were done. Um, different populations, different designs, but basically the gist of this is that there was a PFS benefit from the experimental arm, and the experimental arm contained novel agents. So either your BTK inhibitor or your BCL2 inhibitor. Again, versus chemotherapy, PFS benefit with the novel agents. So if we look at a couple of these studies, there's longer-term evidence supporting continuous BTKI therapy. So in the Resonate 2, we now have eight years of follow-up data. This was a Brutinib, our first BTKI, versus chlorambucil. So BTKI versus chemotherapy in treatment-naive CLL. And of course, there was a PFS benefit with a Brutinib. 59% versus 9% at seven years. It's, it's astounding. Benefit in deletion 11Q and unmutated IGHV patients. So now we see benefit in patients with high-risk genomic features. And overall survival at seven years was 78% with abrutinib. So again, our take-home here, sustained benefit with first-line abrutinib treatment for CLL, including patients with high-risk genomic features. Moving on to our second generation, acalabrutinib, the Elevate study. Four years of follow-up data now available. Again, PFS benefit with acalabrutinib. Uh, there were two arms that had acalabrutinib, and both of those showed benefits over the obinutuzumab chlorambucil arm the chemotherapy arm. So here are some studies that allowed for patient with TP53 aberrations. Um, You know, there's three of them here. And basically, the takeaway here is that the patients who received the BTKIs did better than the patients who were on chemotherapy. So again, there was no BCL2 inhibitors here. These were BTKIs. But it does show the potent efficacy of the BTKI therapy in TP53 CLL. So what about fixed-duration venetoclax and obinutuzumab in TP53 CLL? Again, it's a regimen that's recommended by the NCCN. So although fixed-duration Venji was effective in the CLL14 trial, the presence of deletion 17P and TP53 was associated with unfavorable prognosis. And if you kind of look at the graph there, your dotted lines are Venji, no deletion 17P, and G chlorambucil, no deletion 17P. So overall survival is okay. But then if you look at the solid lines, that's where you add in those 17P patients. And there's quite a disparity there between the two groups. So we have to explain prognostic factors to patients. Um, Most of us in urban centers, we run this testing on patients at diagnosis. And it becomes part of what we discuss with them, you know, as we're, we're introducing them to their disease. So the three that are highlighted are actually the ones that affect our patient, Michael. He has a TP53 mutation, he has IGHV status of unmutated, and he is greater than 65. So TP53 is just your your, uh, suppressor gene, right? So again, if this is mutated, less control over the proliferation of cancer cells. Um, Mutated and or deleted here is not good. 
IGHV, so this is kind of, we call this antibodies, helps with instructions for antibodies, which help you fight infections. Unmutated, again, poor prognostic factor. And age greater than 65, again, you're likely to have more, more comorbidities the older that you are. So again, when we say poor risk factors too, shorter time to treatment, maybe shorter PFS, okay? This is what we're talking about. So the CLL Society Toolkit, this test before you treat campaign, is super helpful for patients. We test FISH and TP53 mutation before every treatment. Why? Because these can actually change. Uh, IGVH mutation status, we test before first treatment. We don't have to retest this again, this does not change. Uh, deletion 17P, no chemotherapy, TP53 mutation, no chemotherapy. We figured this out with prior slides we reviewed. IGVH unmutated, no FCR, I'll go as far to say no chemotherapy here at all. And IGVH mutated, possible FCR, you, you have to say it. Um, especially if there's a 13Q deletion and you have good prognostic factors. There are studies, patients have gone into long-term remission after FCR with those prognostic factors. So you can't say no, also considering that's actually considered a time-limited therapy. So we're back to Michael again. We've counseled Michael on his expected prognosis using appropriate tools and resources. We've educated on the risks and benefits of continuous versus fixed-duration therapy. And I believe a continuous BTK option is an excellent choice for this patient, and that would be my recommendation based on the data provided. But we cannot say that fixed-duration VENG is not a reasonable option, considering patient preferences and goals of therapy. So I, I actually turn to my colleagues and ask, what would your choice be for Michael at this point? Uh, therapy with a BTK inhibitor is totally reasonable, but um, time-limited therapy with venetoclaxo venetuzumab is also totally reasonable. And as long as you go over what um, his goals are for therapy, um, and if he's okay with continuous uh, treat to prog progression or intolerance, um, I think this is more than reasonable and will give him excellent disease control. I, I agree. I agree. And I try to tell patients, no matter what you choose this time, the other option will still be available next time. So there's no, they're not closing doors on, on treatment options. Very true. And considering the patient and their lifestyle is huge here, uh, and we'll, get a, we'll go into that a little further down the line. So now back to Michael again. We assume the BTKI therapy is chosen. And our next step should include counseling on dosing and drug interactions. So let's start with abrutinib, our first to market BTK, okay? So for CLL, the dosing is 420 milligrams by mouth once a day as a single agent or in combination. Uh, we do administer the abrutinib before a monoclonal antibody if they're to be given in the same day. Huge to note that the dosing for mantle cell lymphoma is actually higher, it is a different dosing. So it is 560 milligrams by mouth once a day versus the 420 for CLL. We encourage patients to take this drug the same time each day with a full glass of water, irrespective of food. Um, and if administered with CYP3A inhibitors, we, cons we consult prescribing information for dosing modifications. And we'll go into that a little in a little bit. Um, again, reducing dosage to 140 or once daily for hepa mild hepatic impairment and even less for uh, moderate hepatic impairment. Again, we'll get into this. Um, big thing with the BTKs, again, you want to remind them not to take 
um, not to consume grapefruit products or sable oranges, which are often found in marmalades. These are actually uh, CYP3 inhibitors, so they can increase the, the drug concentration in the blood. I will be honest with you, and I think my colleagues can agree, we have never devastated anyone with the news that they cannot have grapefruit. <laughs> Moving on to a calibrutinib, a calibrutinib second generation BTK, 100 milligrams by mouth every 12 hours. Uh, this is the same dosing in mantle cell NCLL. Administered with a full glass of water, with or without food, if a dose is missed by more than three hours, it should be skipped and you take the next one at your regularly scheduled time. Um, again, there are some dosage adjustments. We'll kind of get into this. So be prepared to review drug interactions with BTK inhibitors when counseling your patients. I mean, we're all nurses, or most of us are nurses. This is what we do. We do med reconciliation. We check for interactions. This is a huge part of safety with our patients. So this is not new to any of us, and this is what we do standard of practice. So this is kind of a busy slide, um, but it basically goes to show that there are some, some recommended avoid areas and dose reduction or dose increase areas based on other medications they're taking. Um, you know, a big one is uh, CYP3A inhibitors. You have your azoles, right? I mean, a lot of patients are on azoles. So it's really important that you just check, you check your interactions and your prescribing guidelines for these patients. Um, one of the big things, though, to bring up is this gastric acid-reducing agent. So these PPIs are proton pump inhibitors. At this time, you can't take proton pump inhibitors with a calibrutinib, which has been frustrating to some of us because this is the only approved second-generation BTK right now. And a lot of patients are on proton pump inhibitors. So again, at this, you can, you can give them H2 receptor antagonists like Pepsid, and you have to separate by two hours, but a lot of patients want their PPIs. So luckily for us... Hopefully, by the end of the year, there's a new acalabrutinib maliate salt, immediate release and suspension that should be coming out. Clinical effect is expected to be comparable. Um, and regardless of use of PPIs and ingestion of food, it can be used. So that's fantastic. So we're back to Michael again. And we have a little bit of a change in scenario. So what if Michael had presented with a history of cardiac complications like AFib or poorly controlled hypertension? Assuming continuous therapy was still preferred, can understanding BTKI safety help us refine our patient care? So the honeycomb on the left here, common toxicities. I'm not going to go in depth here on all of these. Just take a couple. Um, we're talking about cardiac, so hypertension, usually a later effect of BTKs. We monitor and we treat with antihypertensives. Bleeding is huge. It has an antiplatelet effect. It's like it functions like an aspirin, thins the blood. There's a couple things to note with this. So you have to warn your patients. They can have petechiae. They can bruise easily. We need to know if there's overt bleeding, nosebleeds, bleeding when you go to the bathroom. Um, these patients have to hold these drugs X amount of days before certain procedures. And they should call the office, and they need to let us know so we can tell them when to hold these medications. Also, because of the high risk of bleeding, if there's any significant trauma, especially to the head, they need to be imaged. You know, you slip and fall. It's been all over the news lately. People who injure their heads, right? I mean, Bob Saget, right? So we have to be really, really cautious with these patients. Uh, atrial fibrillation. This is the one that'll, that'll scare your patients the most when you're starting these drugs. Either they have a history and they don't need any more drama, or their heart is perfect and they don't want anything. They don't want to take the risk. But we talk about the risk of atrial fibrillation. It can occur at any time. Okay? And we, the best thing to do is just to educate them on the signs and symptoms of atrial fibrillation and what they should do if they should have any of these signs and symptoms. 
So general BTK inhibitor safety monitoring approaches, we've talked about some of these already, right? Um, we really want to consider non-warfarin anticoagulation in patients with new AFib. Warfarin's hard to manage, okay? We want to make sure these patients who are on anticoagulation are also, uh, their platelet count is kept above 50. Um, hypertension, we already talked about, managed with antihypertensives. We're going to monitor our patients for signs of bleeding. Arthralgias, we really didn't get into. These can be significant. We rule out other causes. Um, we use supportive care for lower-grade events, some Tylenol, whatever pain medication of choice um, your practice uses. Um, you can recommend physical therapy. Um, but sometimes you actually have to reduce the dose. And in my practice, I think there was only one time that we had to actually stop this therapy and change because of significant arthralgias. Uh, monitor for infections and secondary malignancies, obviously. And again, you're going to watch these patients closely in the beginning. You're going to assess CBCs monthly and then per practice guidelines, however your practice does it, you'll continue to monitor these patients. So guidance on AE is more typically associated with second-generation BTKs. The big one is a calibrutinib and headaches, right? You kind of expect your patients will get some headaches. Typically resolve in the first one to two months of therapy. And they're managed really, really well with acetaminophen and or caffeine. And I usually go right to caffeine because it's supposedly a miracle. For those patients who tell you they don't consume caffeine, they're going to have to get some caffeine pills. I'm sorry. Um, but again, dosage reductions and interruptions are usually not necessary. And with xanabrutinib, again, not yet approved, but soon, um, we should be prepared to monitor for neutropenia. And so there you want to provide your patients with growth factor if necessary. Again, a complicated slide, but if you look at this first rectangle on the left, you have your covalent or irreversible BTK inhibitors. Um, and they start with um, the least selective and move towards the most selective. So abrutinib being first to market, less selective, more, more off-target effects. More off-target effects, more side effects, right? So acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib are more selective, so less off-target effects. Um, and then if you move over to the non-covalent BTK, pertabrutinib, again, this is, this is a reversible BTK. These are more selective, less off-target, and there is no head-to-head -head for the uh, non-covalence versus the uh, covalence to know which one is actually the most selective. But the takeaway here really is that the newer generation have less side effects because they hit less off-target. So communication is key. We educate our patients on safety differences between BTK options, okay? And there's been a couple head-to-head -head trials in CLL, um, abrutinib versus acalabrutinib in Elevate, um, and then xanabrutinib and abrutinib in Alpine, and both of them have shown uh, less side effects in the newer generation, and especially a less incidence of atrial fibrillation. So, I mean, it's pretty significant. Abrutinib in the Alpine, abrutinib 10.1% to 2.5% with xanabrutinib. And now I'm going to pass the wand over to Kristen Badiato. I want to thank you all for your time. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Okay. Thank you for getting up so early with us, and thank you to Peerview for having me. So I'm going to talk about Sarah here. She's a 73-year-old female with a recent diagnosis of treatment-naive CLL. Um, she presents to our clinic with progression of disease in the setting of worsening lymphadenopathy, classic B symptoms. She has no major comorbid illnesses, and her creatinine clearance is greater than 60 ml per minute. 
Her prognostic testing shows she has a mutated IGHV without evidence of a TP53 deletion or mutation or without a DEL17P deletion. Just want to note, testing for TP53 mutation and DEL17P deletions are two separate tests. Uh, DEL17P testing is a fish test. Uh, testing for TP53 <coughs> is a molecular test. Sometimes people don't know the difference. So what are we going to treat Sarah with? Um, she's treatment-naive CLL, so we're looking at frontline uh, therapy options. Um, she's favorable risk CLL because she doesn't have any high-risk uh, genomic features. So we, have, um, we can offer her the convenience of continuous BTK um, suppression. Um, the BTK inhibitors, which Chrissy just reviewed, uh, include ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. These agents provide excellent disease control, prolonged progression-free survival, independent from minimal residual disease. So the majority of these patients will not achieve MRD negativity. However, if that's not the goal of the patient, it's not always mandatory. These people can remain on these drugs, these monotherapy drugs, for years and years with excellent disease control. Then we have fixed duration with venetoclaxobinutuzumab. Um, this combination provides excellent disease eradication, prolonged progression-free survival, and the majority of these patients will achieve MRD undetectability, usually within the first year of therapy. These patients are able to stop therapy after one year and have a deep and durable remission where they can remain on treatment-free observation for, quite, for many years after. So when you're considering time-limited therapy, there's a couple of key questions we need to ask these patients. Uh, there's an increased risk for tumor lysis with venetoclax and obinutuzumab. <clears throat> Can these patients stay adequately hydrated? They need to drink about 1.5 to 2 liters daily throughout their uh, venetoclax ramp-up. Also, the venetoclax ramp-up paired with obinutuzumab is quite an extensive schedule. These patients are coming in frequently to clinic. Um, can they, you know, and they have to bring their medications with them. Are they compliant with medications? They may even require additional supportive medications. Um, you know, are they going to follow directions? Um, also, this regimen requ requires frequent long clinic visits um, with multiple labs, IV hydration and infusions, and extra monitoring. Um, does a patient have transportation to and from clinic? Do they drive, or do they have family or friends who can take them to and from and who can adhere to this extensive uh, um, schedule, especially in the first couple of weeks of therapy. Again, there's a potential for obinutuzumab infusion reactions. Are they prepared for that? Also, I want to note, some patients are high risk for developing tumor lysis, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but we usually recommend these patients are hospitalized the first two, uh, two weeks of therapy at least, depending on how they do. Are they willing to be hospitalized for that? All things we have to review before committing to time-limited therapy with venetoclax obinutuzumab. So time and time again, we've seen um, randomized phase three trials um, compare chemoimmunotherapy to novel-based approach, and we've seen that the novel-based approach has a superior progression-free survival benefit. So in general, MRD rates are lower with continuous BTKI therapy, like I said before, despite excellent disease control. So a lot of times these patients are able to be maintained on with, at, with excellent disease control, but they're never going to achieve MRD undetectability, or they're going to be, be on therapy for years and years before they come close. And that's not always necessary for patients. Usually these patients have good quality of life, and this is a, this is a very good option for them. Also want to note, there are other multiple ways to check MRD. Um, there's peripheral flow cytometry or flow cytometry, flow cytometry in the bone marrow, and next generation sequencing as well. 
In contrast, people receiving venetoclaxo benetuzumab, the majority of these patients will achieve MRD undetectability. 76% in the peripheral blood, as shown by this graph, compared to 57% by bone marrow. So, like I said before, these patients, the majority of these patients get a deep, durable remission and are able to um, proceed with treatment-free observation following the first busy year of therapy for them. So historically, we've seen patients with IGHV, um, um, mutated IGHV confers a more favorable prognosis for patients with CLL when compared to unmutated patients. We've seen this play, play out in the chemoimmunotherapy era. Unmutated patients tend to have a better prognostic course with these novel agents, but when compared to mutated patients, it's still unfavorable. They have unfavorable outcomes. So we have Sarah here. She's sitting in our clinic today. She needs therapy. Um, Sarah is leaning towards time-limited therapy. She, she drives. She's compliant with medication. She's ready to go. Um, I'm going to kick this back to my colleagues here, um, Chrissy, Christina and uh, Amy. Is this, is this a reasonable um, treatment option for her? What would, you, would you do this in your clinic? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I mean, she's a perfect fit for fixed-duration therapy. Um, and I think you can also assume this is probably going to be better for her lifestyle because that matters. Yeah. 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 Agree. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a pretty big cell where we work too. People, per, a lot of patients prefer the time limited therapy option. Okay. So, um, when used, in, when venetoclax is used in the front line, um, we, we pair it with obinutuzumab, and obinutuzumab is given for the first three weeks in a row, and then venetoclax is added on day 22 of cycle one. When we're using it in the relapse refractory setting, um, we, we usually start uh, venetoclax in the, in the front, um, and they'll complete the five-week ramp-up, and then, and then um, rituximab is added um, after they complete the dose ramp-up, and they have to be on the 400 milligram gold dose for at least a week before incorporating, the, uh, incorporating rituximab. Again, like I said, there is a five-week extensive ramp-up for venetoclax in order to mitigate the risk of tumor lysis. So anytime we're starting um, a new, a new uh, therapy with any, with any patients, you want to do an extensive medication reconcil reconciliation list. I want to remind you guys, these patients are usually the median age is 70. They have comorbidities. They're usually on a lot of cardiac medications. And you want to make sure there's no drug-drug interactions with venetoclax and these cardiac medications. Really important. If it gets complicated and there are dose reductions required, I advise involving a pharmacist who can help you navigate that. So there's a tumor lysis risk with venetoclax. Um, you know, so patients should be educated on what the signs and symptoms are of tumor lysis. This can include nausea and vomiting, shortness of breath, irregular heartbeat, clouding of the urine, lethargy, and joint discomfort. So when people are preparing to start venetoclax-based therapy, we usually have them um, um, increase their oral hydration three to five days prior to coming into clinic. We're also going to put them on an anti-uracemic agent, such as allopurinol, three to seven days prior. And we're going to make sure that they can that they're, they're that they have their drug and they're ready to go. We also want to assess if they're high risk for developing tumor lysis and consider hospitalization. So, in order to assess if a patient is high risk for tumor lysis, um, we, we uh, you probably most likely have to get some kind of imaging. And any lymph node greater than 10 centimeters or the pre, uh, an absolute lymphocyte count greater than 25,000 and any lymph node greater than 5 centimeters is considered um, high risk. Also, the presence of, an L, uh, of a high burden of leukemia involvement in the bone marrow, an elevated pretreatment LDH, or impaired renal function puts people at additional risk for developing tumor lysis. So you really have to look at the patient in front of you and, and see, see if their risk factor is going to go up. 
in addition to compliance. You know, I always think of the, um, you know, the older, the older 80-year-old patient who's widowed, who doesn't really have a lot of family support at home, who doesn't like to drive at night. This is somebody you might want to consider admitting to the hospital for some, uh, some not babysitting, but a little bit more aggressive monitoring, especially with impaired renal function. So we're going to do this in the outpatient setting. You're going to bring these patients in bright and early because it's a long day for them. You're going to get uh, a set of pre, uh, pre-dose labs paying special attention to potassium, uric acid, phosphorus, calcium, and creatinine. And you want to correct any pre-existing abnormalities prior to initiation of treatment with venetoclax. Then you're going to go ahead and repeat tumor lysis labs six to eight hours and again at 24 hours post-dosing. These patients are also going to receive IV hydration on days one and two of each weekly ramp-up and they're going to continue allopurinol throughout their five-week ramp-up as well. So what are the current recommendations for hydration and dosing of anti-hyperuricemics? Low-risk patients can get get away with oral hydration, usually 1.5 to to 2 liters daily. Intermediate-risk patients, um, usually we we give them up to 3 liters daily. And those high-risk patients who are hospitalized, they usually get IV continuous fluids um, while they're hospitalized. Allopurinol, um, usually we give a flat dose of 300 milligrams at our clinic, but you can dose of 200 to 400 milligrams per meter squared daily, and it needs to be adjusted based on renal function. When, if you're considering giving a dose of case for hyperuricemia, you want to rule out a G6PD deficiency. If you give case with a G6PD deficiency, you can cause a life-threatening um, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and that could be quite problematic. So once you have that confirmed that there's no G6PD deficiency, you can go ahead and give case. Usually when the, when the uric acid starts to get up around 8, we consider this. Uh, where I practice, we usually give a 3 to 6 milligram flat dose. Um, however, you can dose it at uh, 0.2 milligrams per kilograms as a 30-minute IV infusion. There are no renal adjustments required. And usually, I've only had to give it about a, a dose or two, but you can give it up to five days, which I've quite frankly never seen, but it's possible if needed. So venetoclax has AEs, like all these other novel agents. The main thing that we see with venetoclax is um, myelosuppression, more in the setting of neutropenia, and we see this anywhere throughout the course of therapy. Um, it, it, it's quite problematic sometimes. So what we do is um, we're aggressive with our, our, new, our growth factor support. Um, we, we're very liberal with that in our clinic. Also, if it's grade three or growth, grade four, we'll consider antibiotics or even a brief hold, and once their counts recover, we'll go ahead and restart venetoclax. Um, and if this is a recurrent issue, you can consider a dose reduction. Um, GI events include nausea and diarrhea. They're usually quite mild. Um, infection, upper respiratory, most common. Autoimmune hemolytic anemia and 7% of monotherapy with, with monotherapy and joint pain. I'm going to remind you guys, there's a free CLL Society patient education toolkit binder for healthcare providers, and this includes information on targeted agent classes for the use of CLL. and hand it over to Amy now. Thank you. So we've heard about um, our current first line and relapse refractory um, options, and so now we're going to talk about what's coming, what's, what's next. So we've got another video. This is Bob. Hello, my name's Bob Levis. I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL. My uh, journey began actually uh, in 2002 when I was diagnosed with CLL. I was 51 on uh, what would be an eight-year business assignment in Singapore. You know, your, your, your first thought there is, uh, you know, uh, how much time do I have? 
you know, long story short, it worked. Um, I got a three and a half year remission and the therapy saved my life at, at the time. Um, I relapsed. Uh, Abrutinib was FDA approved at that time. I went on Abrutinib. Um, I still had CLL in my bone marrow, <clears throat> so I um, signed up for a second CAR-T trial. So <laughs> that summarizes 20 years uh, and, and going with, with CLL. My nurse at Penn Medicine, her name's Alan. Uh, I've been with her, she's been with me, caring for me for the past five or six years, starting with my second CAR-T. Um, she's excellent, doing my, uh, my EKGs, so my checkups, scheduling my next appointments, um, doing the blood work, discussing the blood work. I wouldn't have anybody do right now uh, a bone marrow biopsy, but her, she's excellent. They were trained, prepared. Uh, there was a dialysis machine outside in case they needed that for any kidney issues. They had tocilizumab ready uh, uh, to kill the reaction in case it got, got out of hand. And um, a completely different situation from my first CAR-T. Uh, we, we have 39 support groups across the country. We've got uh, 30-some uh, uh, hematology, oncology, CLL specialists um, on our medical advisory board. Um, we have uh, um, a website that gets 80,000 hits a week uh, for those uh, CLL patients looking for guidance, looking for help. Our tagline is smart patients get smart care. There's a lot of options out there for, for CLL. We talk about all of them uh, at the CLL Society. To the nurses out there, uh, I wanna thank you for what you do. Uh, you've been with me for 20 years uh, through six treatments, four clinical trials. Uh, you are a special kind of person. Uh, there's only one other person in my life um, who's been there like that with me through 20 years of trials and treatments, and that's my wife, Sue, uh, and uh, my two sons and their families. Great, so another, another inspiring story. So before we dive into new options, we do have time for some questions. I have a question about BTK inhibitors and do you change your monitoring schedule? How are you, the longer patients are on them and do you change that monitoring schedule specifically looking for progression? Um, we, usually when we start a BTK inhibitor, we'll start the patient and we'll see them one week later for a lab check. Um, though there is low risk of tumor lysis with BTKI inhibitors, patients with high disease burden can have a little bit of lysis. So we always make sure everything's fine at one week. If everything's fine from there, we usually spread out visits to four weeks. 
Um, and as the longer they're on the therapy, we can extend out to about three months. We usually don't go longer than three months without assessing the patient on therapy, but that's usually what we do. And we don't do it because we're looking for progression of disease. We're just doing it because we're looking to monitor our patients who are on active therapy. Yeah, I agree too. Um, you know, when we start BTK inhibitors, um, we tend to get weekly labs for the first month. It's really practice preference. Um, but we're also um, kind of navigating if they develop any AEs at this time. I feel like most of the majority of the time, the AEs are in, right when you first begin therapy. So with a calibrutinib, this is when the headaches are going to sit in. Um, you know, with with a brutinib, they can have you know other um, arthralgias, myalgias, and you can help the patients kind of navigate these AEs and you know kind of reassure them that it, it gets better with time, and um, and offer them some supportive care options as well. Thank you. And then the next question um, is about venetoclax and the use of growth factor versus holding drug. How, do, how are you deciding whether you're holding or you're giving growth factor or doing yeah. both? So usually if it's around a grade three, uh, grade four, definitely we're going to hold um, venetoclax and administer growth factor. Um, grade three, we usually give... Um, well, what we tend to do is we'll give growth factor with close lab monitoring, and if they don't recover, um, then we'll consider a, a brief hold. Um, sometimes I have to bring these patients back, you know, you know, multiple times a week to, to monitor their ANC and make sure they're, they're responding appropriately to the growth factor. So it's kind of like a case-by-case -case basis, but um, it's, it does require some close monitoring and some, and it can be an annoyance for patients, but you don't want our patients walking around neutropenic, especially in, in a pandemic. I agree with Kristen. Um, you know, uh, some of these patients actually do also require dose reductions. Um, you don't want patients to live on growth factor. It, you know, the benefit of these therapies um, is kind of lost if the patient has to come every two weeks for a shot of Nulast or a Pegfilgrastum. Um, and so again, sometimes you also have to consider dose adjustments and it's a balancing act to find the dose that works for that patient. Everyone's different. Yep, thank you. I agree totally. So let's move on to our uh, third patient. So we're going to talk about options after multiple relapses. So John is a 69-year-old guy. He got a calibrutinib as his initial therapy. He did well for four years. He progressed, and then he went on venetoclax with rituximab. And he relapsed again, and he got a PI3 kinase inhibitor. He rapidly progressed. So he's got unmutated um, IG, IGHV. Um, he does not have a deletion 17P or TP53 mutation. So what are we thinking about for him? Um, would another just FDA-approved covalent BTK inhibitor be useful? Would venetoclax be useful? Should he try something new? So in current guidelines, um, BTK inhibitors and venetoclax are our preferred options. So we've talked about this before. Um, you, you've seen these slides. These are our preferred um, agents, and he's gotten these, and he's also gotten a PI3 kinase inhibitor. So this works in low-risk settings, also in high-risk settings, and um, again, he's got um, unmutated um, he's unmutated IVHG, and so he is a higher-risk patient. Chemoimmunotherapy is not a, a great option for this guy, even though he doesn't have a 17P deletion. So in general, if you start with a BTK inhibitor, and we alluded to this, if you start with a BTK inhibitor at progression, you go to venetoclax or a venetoclax containing with anti-CD20. Um, if you start with fixed-duration venetoclax with obinutuzumab, then you go on to BTK inhibitors. 
So for patients who are unable to tolerate ibrutinib, you can use a more, um, because that's our first generation drug, you can move on to second generation, um, either a calibrutinib or a xanabrutinib or venetoclax. So you can switch to a different BTK um, or go to a different class of drugs. I try not to do that because if patients are um, responding, um, abandoning a drug class is still a big deal for this patient population. But what about uh, the patients like this gentleman who have double refractory disease? This is definitely a, a challenging patient population because we don't have really good options for those folks. Oh, and I just want to come back here. So it, he's been on a covalent BTK inhibitor. If, if it, right, so then sequencing to another one is, is likely not to be effective if he was progressing. So what strategies can we use? So we've got our non-covalence. So this, this is um, pirtabrutinib, which we talked about just a little bit. Um, and so what this drug does is it can overcome the most common mutation that makes uh, patients resistant or progress through our current BTK inhibitors. So that will be a great, a great thing to come to market. This very much reminds me of the CML world with, you know, all of the CML, the imatinib, dasatinib, nilotinibs, and who do you, who do you choose? I feel like we're behind the, the game with CLL because the drugs are so much newer for us, but we'll eventually get there to the same place where, where the, our CML world is. Um, CAR T therapy is another, um, option. Uh, for these heavily pretreated patients. They're in clinical trials at this point. Um, PI3 kinase inhibitors are unlikely to be effective. Uh, chemoimmunotherapy is unlikely to be effective. Um, and he's already progressed on BTK inhibitors. So this is our pirtabrutinib. It is a non-covalent um, BTK inhibitor, and Christina talked a little bit about this. And it does, it is, it does overcome, it's active in patients who do develop this um, mutation that is the main cause for them being resistant to our other BTK inhibitors. And it, currently in clinical trial, the, the recommended dose is 200 milligrams daily. And so this is our um, response. Um, overall response rate is about 60%. So that waterfall plot, anything under the line is good. So you can see that it's, it's, the efficacy is great in this heavily pretreated double refractory group of patients. And this is really where we need more options. So this, this is really an exciting drug. And there are more of these also in clinical trials. So pirtabrutinib also appears to have the, le the least uh, BTK-mediated adverse events. And Christina talked about the off-target effects of some of these drugs. So every generation of these is going to hopefully be safer, less side effects, more well-tolerated. So you can see the bleeding and the bruising. If you just look at grade three and four, they're, they're quite low for all of this, bruising, rash, um, AFib, hypertension. So this really looks like a very well-tolerated drug. So what about CAR-T in CLL? So these are our currently approved agents, Axicel, Brexicel, Lysacel, and Tisagen. And you can see they're for diffuse large cell, follicular, um, acute leukemias, mantle cell. You don't see any CLL, right? So these, these are all in clinical trial um, right now for CLL. So just a very thumbnail um, view of CAR-T therapy. So patients have their T cells taken 
by leucophoresis, and then they are sent off to um, a lab where a, a retroviral or um, a vector is um, with anti-CD19 is uh, engineered into those cells, and then they are given back to the patient where they expand and they respond to the tumor. That, that is really the note version. <laughs> uh, right, so, so what are trials showing in CLL? So lysocell. So this is patients in uh, pretreated CLL patients. They were fa they failed or were ineligible for BTK inhibitors. They had um, high risk disease. They failed. Uh, failed at least two prior therapies. If they had standard risk disease, they had to fail at least three prior therapies. And so as you can see, these overall response rates are really stunning. 82% overall response rate in this very heavily pretreated um, patient population. And you can see the, the dark is the complete responses and um, the, you know, the PRs are the lighter, lighter um, stable disease. And then certainly there were some progressions. Um, but this is really exciting, and so hopefully this comes to market for our patients with CLL at some point soon. Okay, so here we go. And this is where I, I just want to bring your eye to this orange um, little line here. So the patients who failed both a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax, so our, our very worst prognosis folks, really have a very similar curve to the patients who um, did not have high-risk disease and did, maybe did not fail all of those therapies. So progression-free survival, median um, 18 months and 13 months in double refractory patients. So this is really better than anything that we have now. So hopefully coming soon to a clinic near us for CLL. And then um, treatment emergent adverse events. So again, for those of you who are in the thick of CAR-T, you know this. Cytopenias, cytokine release, neurotoxicity. Those are the big ones. Um, and, and so you can see that, that this absolutely occurs in this patient population with this drug. They are not insurmountable numbers by any means. And the more we use CAR-T, the better we're getting at managing all of these side effects um, and keeping people safe. So just an overview of CAR-T adverse events. For those of you who are sending patients for CAR-T, um, they need to be prepared for um, cytokine release. Neurological toxicities, uh, tumor lysis can occur, um, B-cell aplasia, um, technically graft-versus-host disease. The severity is typically related to their disease burden, um, and it can be severe, fatal, or patients can have very mild um, symptoms. Typically occurs within the first couple weeks, and it, this is all about inflammation, and, and mass, you see massive increases in their IL-6 levels. This is just how these drugs work. So our take-home on managing um, cytokine release, you know, this is, you can see they have fever, they can have fevers, myalgias, headaches, hypotension, a whole host of, of, um, of issues related to cytokine release. The goal is to prevent that organ failure, but not stop the CAR T cells from working. Supportive care, tocilizumab, steroids are typically what are used. And again, those of you who are doing this, you're doing this every day and you know this. So a typical patient experience is on day two following CAR-T, they get admitted with a fever, they develop headaches, their inflammatory markers are high, 
They, on day three, on day five, they start developing hypotension. They need fluids, oxygen, um, and they get chosiluzumab at that point. So neurotoxicity, um, the cause is, is completely un, non-understood, these neurotoxicities. Um, it is very unclear. Um, high-risk patients tend to have higher disease burden, and those with cytokine release tend to have higher incidence of neurotoxicity. Um, treatment is largely supportive, although there are some drugs that you can give, but it's, it, they can be very subtle, um, you know, with little fine tremors. Word difficulty, word finding difficulty, or patients can be confused and delirious and encephalopathic, um, can be very severe. Typically, it just gets better over time, which is, uh, uh, which is fortunate. And that seizure risk, patients are on uh, anticonvulsants to, pre- to uh, prevent that. So what would CAR-T look like um, in CLL? So what you would do is find a patient who you thought would be a good candidate, you refer them in, and so you just need to educate them about the general, that thumbnail of um, CAR-T and cytokine release and neurotoxicity. But then for the majority of you, this third point is where you're going, you are going to see these patients. So when they come back to you after getting CAR-T, so what can ha- what's happening with those folks? So it's, it's common for them to have cytopenias. They potentially may need transfusions, uh, growth factor, things like that. They may be on anti-infectives. And then neurological symptoms may be lingering. The recommendation for these agents is that patients don't drive for eight weeks because of the length of the um, lingering neurotoxicities. I saw a lady the day before I flew out here who had neurotoxicity. It wasn't severe um, with her CAR-T. And I work in the outpatient setting, so I'm seeing patients when they come back to me. She had her ring finger on her right hand had this very fine tremor in it. That was her only lingering neurological toxicity. So, you know, this is what you're going to be seeing when the patients come back to you. You will not get them with flagrant severe neurological toxicities, they'll stay at the the CAR-T center. So the CAR-T management team, you can see in bold, this is a very nurse-heavy process. It's a very complicated process. And so most of us have specific nurses who coordinate all of this, nurse practitioners who work with these patients. So really, the, at the consult, at um, pretreatment, you know, during CAR-T, at follow-up, really their nursing is, is really part of the backbone of pulling this off. So back to John. He's our 63-year-old who has, is now needing his fourth-line therapy. So, uh, you know, you, you have to, this is a bad spot to be in for patients. And so he needs to understand that our standard options are not likely to be helpful for him. Clinical trials are, are absolutely um, a good option for him. CAR-T is another option. Um, getting him on a peer-to-brutinib trial would, would be a great option. And so, you know, this is where um, we need to make sure that our patients are aware of these novel therapies, offering them to them, referring them out to centers who have clinical trials. Again, we keep coming full circle with the CLL Society. They really They have very nice... CAR-T resources for patients. And and again, as one of our um, video patients said, uh, being led to 
reputable places to find information is very critical for this patient population. You can find a lot of uh, very inaccurate things online. So sending patients to the right places uh, is very helpful. And then coming first full circle, how should we be preparing for the future for caring for our CLL patients? So let's loop back to Michael. So he presents our, our first patient. Our first patient was Michael. Remember, he presents, he's got treatment-naive CLL, he's got high-risk factors. Is he a candidate for a novel st strategy that combines potentially uh, combining uh, multiple of these new agents? And so there are studies underway, ongoing, more coming, looking at um, fixed duration, um, guiding, with that um, measurable residual disease guiding the length of a brutinib and venetic flax, trying to reach that negative measurable disease state. Um, there are, so there are multiple studies combining these agents, and then there are triplet studies going on, combining a BTK and venetic flax with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. So really is, is combining all of these better than using them sequentially. All of that's getting, getting worked out and, you know, will take a while to figure out, but coming lots of trials. And then the early experience with abrutinib and venetic clax. So the way this regimen works is that patients get three months of abrutinib first to debulk them and reduce that risk of tumor lysis syndrome, sort of like with the obinutuzumab, venetoclax, where they debulked with obinutuzumab. And then they start the venetoclax after that lead-in three months of abrutinib. And so as you can see, three cycles of single-agent abrutinib reduce that tumor lysis risk really substantially in patients um, with high risk going into this, this combination of drugs, only 2% remained high risk. So that will be something that you'll be seeing, um, just making sure that we're adequately debulking patients to keep them safe and prevent that fatal or serious tumor lysis syndrome. So what does this mean for all of you? Um, what can you do to prepare for this? So different issues are going to arise when we combine these agents. They have two distinct adverse event profiles. You've got to be prepared for um, adverse events related to both or new, newer um, adverse events or more severe uh, manifestations of, of those adverse events. Um, there's a lot of concern about the finance. These are in trials right now. There's concern about the financial um, issues with uh, using multiple drugs up front, you know that these oral drugs can often take a lot of work to get them approved. So now think about getting two approved. Um, and then educating patients and caregivers, as our patients uh, said, they're going to ask you questions that they're not asking their doctor. And so you've, you've got to be ready to answer those questions or at least know where to point them to get uh, good answers to their questions. And so our take-homes is, you know, hang on for the ride. The CLL landscape is changing quickly, and it is going to continue to change quickly. Um, we've got to be adaptable and, you know, pivot quickly as these new therapies come to our clinics. Uh, newer drugs are coming. They're here. They're going to become con come constantly. We will get have new drug classes. We will have new drugs within our existing drug classes. Um, and then just being prepared for CAR-T. Uh, in the CLL space, and, you know, we just have to stay vigilant and prepared, and 
I think that is the last slide. And so um, let's take a couple questions. I think we have time for a couple questions. Does anybody want to shout out a question? So they are currently paying for um, the when we use them as single agent. They are currently paying for them. Do you guys want to? I mean, sometimes it's a little fight, but in general, yes. Go ahead. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid are tricky um, because you have to have a certain, there's a threshold of income. Um, so a lot of the patients with Medicare and Medicaid wind up needing grants or financial support through other other. Um, options like the CLL Society or other people who provide funding for these patients. It's a lot easier to get these drugs approved via commercial insurance. Yeah, and the Medicare patients get in that donut hole situation. But all of these companies have assistance programs that they, they will help, help patients with, like Christina said, with grants. But that takes time and effort. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the patients have to as you know, provide financial information, and that, that can be a challenge for some of our folks as well. Okay, so let's talk about MRD. So is it standard of care to check MRD at various points during a patient's treatment journey? That's uh, a good question. It is a good question. Um, we, you know, we, I know we look at a lot of uh, randomized studies that check or are checking MRD, but it is actually not considered standard of care to check MRD, specifically when following the CLL-414 regimen after a patient's complete a year of therapy with venetoclaxobinutuzumab. It's recommended those patients just stop therapy. However, it's, it's up to the physician preference, but again, it's not standard of care. Okay, we have a few online questions. Thanks to the online group for uh, throwing questions in. So this question is about CAR-T. So when we are sending patients to CAR-T centers, what is the timing from when they're sent to when the decision is made to when they are actually ready for therapy? That is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was a I wish there was a firm algorithm for that. So typically the decision about whether a patient is a good fit or not a good fit is a relatively quick um, decision, but then they have to go through some evaluations and they have to have their cells harvested and they have to be expanded. And a lot of these um, companies will tell you that it's going to take two weeks to expand their cells and that's usually not the case. It usually takes longer than that. So, you know, we're typically continuing to treat patients so they don't have big intervals without therapy. Mm -hmm. So there, there's really not a hard and fast timeline. I think there is on paper, but that often is not the reality of how, how it works. And I, I wish that that was not the answer. <laughs> Um, so from online, what can we do to prepare for the emergence of non-covalence BTK inhibitors? Um, do you have any experience with the agent? Is there anything that we should be looking for? Uh, yeah, I work closely with um, pertubertinib and or Loxo 305, and it has a really uh, very good AE uh, profile. These, these agents are tolerated really well. Um, we're excited for it to come to market whenever that may be. Um, so it's, uh, I really don't have much to say because these patients tolerate it very, very well. And um, I think it'll be a, a good tool in our toolbox for, peep, for patients who have been exposed to venetoclax or uh, covalent BTK inhibitors with, with progression or intolerance. Yeah, I think it's just important that once there is more information on this drug that's, that's 
um, published to just familiarize yourself with it before you actually try to advise patients on it. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, we have another. We have another question about CAR T. It's complicated. Do you have advice on um, ways that we can easily explain this to patients who don't have many good treatment options? I would recommend you look at the CLL Society, um, but also the agents have patient education materials available. Um, it is hard for lots of folks to wrap their heads around CAR-T, which is why we have to understand it enough to explain it to them. Um, we have so many questions here. Thank you, everybody, for asking these questions. So what is your experience, ladies, with managing patients who have progressed on both a BTK inhibitor and venetoclax? That's kind of a loaded question too. You know, um, you know, a, a, you know, a double refractory patient is in trouble, and um, and this is when you would um, recommend they start pursuing CAR T cell options versus uh, a clinical trial. Um, depending on where they're getting care, they might need to you know seek out clinical trials um, um, for um, to prolong their care. Yeah, oh, great, one hundred percent. We usually recommend clinical trials first. Great. And then what have you learned during COVID about safety managing, about safely managing patients who have no choice but to come into the clinic, for example, those getting time-limited therapies? I think just, you know, we've been, you know, we've had a full clinic all throughout the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, standard precautions, you know, wearing masks, um, you know, social distancing. We've limited our, you know, our visitor policy where they're, you know, depending on the week sometimes it's they're allowed one person, they're allowed nobody. Um, and just really reinforcing the, you know, the CDC guidelines and helping patients, you know, encouraging them to follow it and, um, and get vaccinated and boosted is, is really key here. Um, we know that they have suboptimal responses to vaccines. Um, and I think that's, you know, the best we can, we can kind of offer them, you know, and just support them because they're very anxious about this. Yeah, agree. I mean, and I think a lot of us attempted to keep patients who did not need to be there out of the office so that there was, you know, there was less risk for the patients that did have to be there because there are patients who could not avoid coming into the office. So we tried to keep them as safe as humanly possible. And we're learning more about COVID-19 in this patient population as time goes on. And there have been some publications suggesting that patients who were vaccinated before they started their anti-CD20 maintained their immunity. So we have started, I don't know what you ladies are doing, but we have started, if we get a patient who's unvaccinated and they need to start anti-CD20, we will delay it if possible to have them get their vaccinations done. Mm. Um, it's, it's still sort of amazing the number of folks who have, have not yet yeah. been vaccinated. So, and, and we'll give Evia Shield, right? So yes. the prophylactic antibodies, um, especially to patients before they receive CD20 therapy. Yep. Absolutely. Yep, 100% agree. Yep. Okay. Um, so can you discuss the best way to address lower grade arthralgias? I have a patient taking BTK who is responding well, is on therapy, but always brings these low grade issues. That's really their major complaint. Um, so again, the first thing you have to do is just make sure there's nothing else going on. Um, there's no kind of autoimmune thing, so just make sure you check those markers. Um, we usually just recommend, um, you know, Tylenol or, uh, you know, pain medication as tolerated. Um, we will recommend sometimes physical therapy to see if that helps. Um, but other than that, um, you know, patients who have these arthralgias that started with these drugs, you kind of have to try to 
see if they'll hang in there. Um, if they can hang in, these, these side effects usually improve with time on therapy. But again, there are patients who've had to have dose reductions or stop therapy because of them when it's extreme. Agree. Uh, a couple things that we also do at, in, in our practice is, um, you know, you can also consider a brief hold depending where they are in their therapy. Um, you know, if they're just, you know, if it's the first month of therapy, you try not to do that and you try to kind of like get them through with symptomatic support, which is um, with supportive care. Um, but consider a brief hold or even a short course of steroids. And sometimes that just kind of resets things and they tend to, they tolerate, to tolerate drug um, when they're rechallenged with it. Um, also, sometimes I recommend topical Voltaren cream. Um, patients either love it or hate it, but it's another tool. It's a topical NSAID you can use. Um, but those are some, you know, some ways we can help navigate them as well. And just, you know, and usually just reassure them. It's usually, you know, worse in the first couple of weeks of therapy and then it, it tends to abate. But, but then sometimes people struggle with it throughout their whole course of therapy and you have to either dose, consider a dose reduction or even switching agents. Um, due to CLL patients being immunocompromised, are there any particular supplements they should or should not be taking even if they are treatment naive. Does living in a COVID world affect that? Um, and how might those supplements affect treatment? The, uh, the physician I work with does not love supplements. <laughs> um, they tend to, so a lot of times when, if you're on therapy, um, supplements can be problematic as they can interfere with, um, with your, the therapy you're giving, your, whether they're BTK or VEN. Um, but I know there's a lot of research out there. If you're on observation, um, we don't particularly have a recommend a particular supplement, but, um, you know, you're not, there's no, and you have to check for drug-drug interactions with the other agents you're on, obviously, if you're on other cardiac meds or, you know, you just want to run it by a pharmacist and make sure you're not doing more harm than good. Um, but we don't have any specific recommendations. Yeah, same. Um, you know, patients who are not being treated are on a bunch of supplements. That's usually okay. You really have to watch out for the supplements that increase risk of, of bleeding, especially if you're on therapy like turmeric, even your omega-3s, right? Um, so, you know, you got to be really cautious with the uh, supplements. But, you know, it's just it's an important communication, right? You just have to talk it through. So here's a good question. Is bone marrow transplant still an option? I think that um, we try and navigate all other potential therapies before proceeding with the bone marrow transplant because it's extremely toxic. Um, but you know, for, but for younger, fit patients who have um, blown through multiple therapies, we you know, it's definitely something we're going to keep on the back burner um, as an option. You don't see it often, but it's yeah. there. Right. Yes, and we don't have CAR-T approved yet for CLL, so uh, I think the real shift will come when we actually can use CAR-T consistently. Um, okay, well, wonderful. Um, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the CLL Society. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QWZ860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AbbVie, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, 
and Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC.